Greetings and salutations. This is Michael Govier from the First Day Podcast, and you are listening to Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 280, Movies You Only Need to Watch Once. Chris McBrien along with Derek Myers and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. We're back. We took a week off. Derek and I were busy at a Comic-Con together recently, but uh, we'll get to that, I'm sure. This week, we're going to be taking a look at movies that you only need to watch once, like good movies, but you know, once is enough, you know, to watch them. So this would be interesting. But before we get to that, Derek, what is new in the world of pop culture for you, my friend? Hey, Chris. Uh, well, I had a chance to watch a few things. Uh, like you mm-hmm. said, we were off last week. I was at the hockey game, so I had a little bit of time. Um, I had a chance to finish, and I may have mentioned this on a previous show, so I won't dwell on it. I finished watching the second season of the show Reacher. That's based on the character Jack Reacher. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, season two dropped on Amazon around Christmas or well, right after Christmas. So uh, I finally had a chance to finish watching that. I really enjoyed it. So um, those who watch season one, season two, more of the same. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Uh, and then I had a chance to watch two movies, a new one and an old one. I sort of teased this up last week. Mm-hmm. Last time we did our show, I mentioned that I had watched Equalizer 2 because I knew that Equalizer 3 was coming out on uh, on the streamers. That's and the Denzel did. Washington one you were telling me about. First time he's ever done a sequel in his career. Right. Stood out to right. me. Right. So yep. this is a sequel to the sequel. This is nice. part three. Okay. So... Uh, it dropped last weekend. Uh, my wife and I had a chance to watch it. We liked it. It's very much like the first two. Uh, like I said in the last show, Denzel Washington, great actor, one of the greatest actors of our generation. This guy knows how to make a movie. Uh, and even though he's getting up there, he's a little bit older. The way this character is written, it makes sense that an older character plays it. They don't have him doing ridiculous. Well, they do have him doing ridiculous things, but not like superhero ridiculous things that a, a person of his age should have no business doing. So, no, it was good. I really enjoyed it. Equalizer 3 was good. And then since, you know, Denzel Washington, I also had a chance to watch the movie Philadelphia. Tom Hanks and Denzel Washington. Oh, nice. From 93. Yeah. Yeah. And Tom honestly, Hanks for his Oscar. Yeah. Indeed. And part of the reason that I watched this was, as I mentioned before, one of my uh, one of my favorite podcasts other than ours is uh, the, the Rewatchables on the Ringer Podcast Network. And so they just did the movie Philadelphia on their show a couple of like this week or last week. And when I saw it drop on their episodes, I was like, oh, Philadelphia. Well, I think I know that movie well enough. I could probably just listen to the episode that very night. It was on Turner Classic Movie. So I'm like, well, you know what? what? Let's get a two hour refresher. So I enjoyed the movie watching it again. And now I've got a two-hour podcast to go and listen to, so I got I'm gonna get four hours of quality entertainment out of this movie. But yeah, if you nice. haven't seen Philadelphia, definitely check it out. And if you haven't seen it in a while, it's good. But some of the homophobia that's in there is it's, it's obviously of its time and accurate for its time. But it was a it was harder harder to watch than I remember. I, I guess over time, what starts to become more socially acceptable when you go back and see a movie where it was clearly not, excuse me, not as socially acceptable, the way that people talk about it, or it was, yeah, it was pretty bad. And then I finally, I had a chance to watch a documentary. For 40 days and 40 nights, watch documentaries, likes to learn about the world, it's Derek's Documentaries, Derek's Documentaries. Please share. So I was uh, on Amazon Prime, Mm -hmm. and as it often does, the algorithm says, hey, we know what you like. What about this? And so when I was scrolling scrolling through the documentary section, it gave me a documentary called Dear Mr. Watterson. And that name may sound familiar to you because Bill Watterson is the creator of the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes. Oh, yes. And so it's a little bit older. The documentary is about 10 years old, but it is readily available on Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's a look at the, the comic strip, the Calvin and Hobbes comic strip from its idea, the conception, how Bill Watterson uh, came to uh, like he was a cartoonist before he created these characters and sort of his 
uh, arc of of getting into the field in the industry, and then the run of the comic strip and its huge influence. And it also talked about how he never sold the commercial rights to these characters. Like you have the Peanuts gang that you can buy pretty much anything you can imagine from action figures and plushies and T-shirts and lunch pails and anything and everything that has, say, Snoopy or Charlie Brown on it. And you even see like those characters hawking things like MetLife commercials. Like there's a lot of merchandising money to be made from popular comic comics and cartoons. Watterson had no desire to do any of that. He retained the rights 100% and they never made toys or t-shirts or anything other than the comic strips and the books. So it was a really interesting look at this uh, this intellectual property and how somebody who, um, who you know, had it, had it, they captured lightning in a bottle and, and chose to do a certain way to keep the integrity of these characters. He didn't want, like they were saying, come on, you could have had a Hobbs stuffed tiger um, thing for sale for kids. You would have sold and made a million bucks. And he's like, I'm already doing well enough. Mm -hmm. I don't, I, you know, he, he felt it would cheapen and lessen his intellectual property. So Very cool. it was kind of refreshing to, to, to hear that. But at the same time, you can sense the frustration from some of the partners and some of the fans. And unfortunately, they don't actually get to interview him at all because he's very reclusive and he, he doesn't make public appearances. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot of people that have worked with him and his peers in the, the cartooning industry and people who um, are like archivists for newspapers and libraries and things of that nature. So there was still an interesting cross section of people that, that got to contribute to this documentary. And if you are a fan of the comic strip. I think you'll enjoy it. It was. It only runs about an hour, and uh, no, it was quite good. It's called Dear Mr. Watterson. So and you obviously out. were a fan of the comic strip, I'm assuming. I was, yeah. And and like so many people, it was uh, like I wasn't really a, a person who read the daily newspaper at that point. Like this would have been the mid-80s to early 90s. But they collected them in yeah. various books and anthologies, and mm -hmm. that's how a lot of the people being interviewed, especially a lot of the young people. Me too. That's how, that's how, that's how I got they, to know it. That's how they got into it. And um yeah, no, it was it was fascinating. And and even just hearing them talk about it and looking at some of the strips and they say like the things that he was writing about in the late 80s and early 90s that are depicted in these comic strips are still just as relevant today oh, because yeah. they're very broad topics yep. that are very easily applicable to all walks of life. So if you haven't read your Calvin and Hobbes in a while, it might be worth going back, take another look. That's a good point. Like, I, like for me, it was always like just the simple concept of this kid with this wicked imagination who has a stuffed tiger and when no one else is around the tiger comes to life and talks to him like where he just talks to it right with his yeah. imagination. But the fact is like, it was always about reflecting on like life and stuff. It yeah. was very deep. It was so good. Oh my God. Yeah. Watterson was a lot more intelligent yeah. than people probably gave him credit for. And, and yeah, there's a lot of satire. There's a lot of social commentary in there that you might not have picked up on when you were first reading it. Because if you were like me, I was a teenager, like a lot of it probably went over my head, but seeing it, some of it analyzed in this documentary, it really sort of opened my eyes a bit. I, I, I'm going to go back and read because I still have a few of those anthologies in the bookshelf. I like how you mentioned too, how he did it, never commercialized it and never mm -hmm. put it into like, you know, dolls or action figures or things like that. But lots of intellectual properties have done that. And I'm Almost glad that they have yeah. because this past weekend, you and I actually had the opportunity to get together and go to a Comic-Con together. Actually, it was, it was sort of a Comic-Con on one side and then the other side was like a, a toy and collectible show man let me tell you i had myself a good time it was so <laughs> fun oh my gosh the best so, time you've had with your clothes on all year yeah exactly so the comic-con part i was like eh, you know that's not really my thing i'm not a big comic you're a big comic guy i'm not yeah, a big I got a comic couple guy. of real old batmans the guy yeah Gave me a deal, but they were still really expensive. Oh, yeah. I, I saw you spending the money there. And it was funny because I saw this older couple. You were like bartering with the guy there for the comics. And I saw this couple. They were a little bit older. And they were like around the corner of this guy's booth. And they were looking at a bunch of stuff. And I'm like, what, I wonder what they're looking at. And they stepped out for a minute. So I went in there. And it was like old Mad Magazines. And then like the Marvel Super Specials of the movies. Like, this is the stuff I like. Oh, they nice. didn't have any of the Mad Magazines I wanted. Wasn't into it. But then I was going through the um, the super specials and stuff and the, the you know, the movie adaptations. And I found one like and there, there was like Raiders of Lost Ark, like 60 bucks and all these other ones that are, like, you know, expensive or whatever. And then there was one. It was Xanadu. 
<laughs> and it was 10 bucks. <laughs> so like nobody wanted it. So I took it. I'm like, oh, I'm buying this. I didn't even know it existed. So I bought it and it was so funny because then I got it and I came around and paid for it, put it in my bag, whatever. And then I noticed a couple goes back and I see them looking and then they're like, I can see them kind of frantically looking through the box. I think I stole her Xanadu. <laughs> I think, and then I think the look on their face was like, where'd it go? Like who would take this? Like nobody here would take it. Well, I took it. And the other thing I was really lucky cause I was able to really fill out my empire strikes back card collection. So that was great. I got a full set of Battlestar Galactica cards and I almost finished the original 12 star Wars figures. I did really well. I, I really had a good time. Oh my God, it was so weird. Score. Huge so, nerd. <laughs> yeah, that's what my wife said when I got back. She's like, oh my God, are you a nerd? I'm like, of course I am. And uh, and that's why I do these. Here's your dad joke of the week. Oh, I got one for you. Derek, why did Ricardo Montalban struggle to find roles after Star Trek II? Oh my God. I, I don't know. Why? Because nobody wanted to hire an ex-con. Oh. Okay, that was pretty good. You got me with that. Is that a pledge pin on your uniform? Doctor. Doctor. Detroit. Detroit. Oh, yes, the Haley Selassie Pavilion. Oh, yes. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, I've seen that. Whiskey. Fun prophylactic. Soiled. Bring him home. You're my friend. I'm going to try and help you. Randy Jackson from the Jackson 5. Really? In Philadelphia, it's worth 50 bucks. Stop. Look at that escargot. Okay, so like we said, this week, we're going to take a look at movies that you only need to watch one time. That's it. But before we get into that, Derek, did you want to like set some parameters for how we went about our list? Because we don't share our lists to each other. We send them to a third party, but we don't know what each other is going to come up with. But what sort of parameters did you put on your list? I know what I did for mine. Well, I mean, it wasn't even so much parameters as much. It was like I started to realize as I was doing a little bit of the homework and trying to put a list together. There's a few few kinds of movies, a few categories, if you will, that 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 I think everything on our list is going to fall into. Um, it, it was like you had things like a um, a horror movie like that was just so graphic you you literally could only watch it once or you had like a movie a, a whodunit mystery or a movie with a twist ending where it's like well once you once you know the the ending there's not really a lot of value in watching it a second time so you had that um but then you also had ones that were that were like this movie is a masterpiece of art it's you know maybe it stars someone who had their signature role or a film creator writer producer director that was like this was the pinnacle of their career but Often these movies are things they're they're often very long. They can often be very boring. Uh, it's usually long, boring dramas, as my wife likes to say. And uh, so it's like the ones where as any self-respecting pop culture aficionado or film student would be like, well, you know, you can't you can't say that you are well. well I guess you wouldn't be well read, well watched if you haven't seen these. But again, it's like, well. I don't think I need to see it five times. I think once is more than enough. And then I can literally just check it off on my mental list and say, yeah, I've seen it. So those were sort of the the kinds of parameters I know that I found I was looking at. And, um, and what I did realize was when I was checking, like, because th- apparently this is a topic that a lot of people have covered before. So I found a lot of top 10 lists online and a lot of movies kept showing up over and over and over again on people's lists. And I, I imagine rightly so. The challenge is, I had seen a lot of the movies that seemed to really fit into this category. Many of them are um, like horror movies, which I'm not a big fan of horror, the horror genre. So, uh, you know, it made sense to me that I I hadn't seen any of those. Um, But some of them uh, are just like really sad, really depressing. Maybe they're about a a topic that is just, you know, difficult to watch and, um, it's not to say that these movies aren't good. It's not to say that there isn't a good reason to uh, that these these film creators, you know, they obviously made the movie for a reason. They wanted to maybe draw awareness to some social issue or something of that sense. But I just if I hadn't seen it, I couldn't I couldn't talk about it. So, as you mentioned, we don't know what he, what is on each other's lists, but uh, we use as as we often do. We, we had my wife be sort of the neutral arbitrator to make sure there was no overlap. I put together a list of some movies that people might expect to be on one or both of our lists that 
neither one of us have seen, so they're not going to be on there. So I'm just going to list a couple of them right now, just sort of as a spoiler, but also sort of so you're not listening going, well, this definitely has to be your number one and number two. It's like, well, if I haven't seen it, I can't have it on. So so sorry, these are movies that you haven't seen. These are movies that normally would be on a list. That are okay. that were on a lot of the lists, okay. and I don't. Again, I, they're not on your. All I know is they're not on your list. You're going to talk about tonight, and mm-hmm. I, I guess for some of them, it's probably the same thing. I, I imagine you haven't seen them, and a couple of these are foreign films as well, so that might be part of it. So it's things like Requiem for a Dream, uh, The Human Centipede, Dancer in the Dark, Audition, Midsummer, Manchester by the Sea. Like these are movies that were on almost all the lists. I haven't seen any of them, so unfortunately, I, I haven't seen them. I, I didn't put them on the list. So I don't know. Had you seen any of those movies, Chris? Well, I think like you, I wanted to avoid movies that I haven't seen, you know, and I haven't seen any of those ones you mentioned. The other thing I wanted to avoid were like what I would call like great movies that, you know, I just didn't like. I mean, there's some like here's an example. Chinatown. It is considered one of the greatest American films ever made, but I didn't I really it. care for it all that much. I really? Yeah, I didn't think it was like See, it. I've seen it like six yeah. or seven times. No. So, so, but that, so again, that's a detective movie where mm-hmm. once you know who did it, I can understand why you maybe don't want to go back and watch it again. I mean, there's like you, you think about movies like for me, like Meatballs and My Bodyguard and Stripes. I've seen them all like 18 million times, but there's some movies I'm just one and done with. You know, yeah. But so, so before we get into that, I have a question for you because I like watching movies over and over again, the same ones, as you know. Surprise, surprise. So I'm wondering, like, what do you think makes a movie rewatchable versus one that's not rewatchable? That is tonight's topic. Well, uh, again, sort of put me on the spot, but I mm-hmm. think that uh, for a movie to be rewatchable, there it has to be entertaining, which is not to say that these one and done movies aren't entertaining. But I think for the most part, we're going to find the pretty heavy topics or the pretty long. So um, it's got to be entertaining. Um, you know, you've got to get a certain sense of enjoyment out of it. Um, you know, again, if you're watching a long, sprawling epic that that features a huge cast of characters, that might be tough to watch a couple of times through, um, you know, if you're not really clicking with it. Um, you know, you want memorable characters, memorable quotes usually. And and honestly, I find that the kind of movies I tend to want to rewatch have, uh, I think of them sort of more like popcorn movies. Like, I'm entertained. It's it's If it's a comedy, it's got lots of good jokes that are that continue to be funny. If it's a good action or a sci-fi movie, there's good sequences that you just want to go, that draw you back into it. Um, or, I mean, there's just the simple, hey, four people in this movie were nominated for Academy Awards. Like these people are at the the top of their ability. Sometimes that's enough too. So I don't know. There's lots of reasons why, why a movie could be rewatchable. So one reason that would make it not rewatchable would, would it be length of the movie? Like, like a super, super long movie, you know, might fall into this category. I would think just, you know, off the top of my head, you mentioned a couple of, you know, examples of movies that might fall into this category. And and a bunch of them are on my list, like things like a horror movie or like a twist ending or that sort of yeah. thing. But what and, about and long movies like that are super, super long? You're like, I just don't need to watch it again because it was like three hours long. Well, and so I'll give you an example again. I know this isn't on either of our lists because I asked you before we put it on the pod is um, I almost put on my list Lawrence of Arabia from the 1960s. <laughs> it's considered one of the very best American films ever made. Uh, it's a sprawling epic. It's the cinematography and the way the movie is shot is is unlike anything you've ever seen before. And if anyone has the opportunity to see it in the theater, I would strongly me- recommend it. I, I myself have only seen it one time. I saw it on a 60-inch flat screen, high definition, 4K. Like, it looked amazing. But that was it. I only ever had to watch it the one time. And like I said earlier, now when someone says, have you seen this movie? Yes, I have. Then they're not looking down their nose at me going, how can you call yourself a movie guy if you've never seen Lawrence of Arabia? It's like, I have. So that's that's in some cases going to be a detriment, but then you have a movie like, uh, like the Godfather, like that's what mm-hmm. three and a half hours. Oh, yeah. I've probably seen hours. it 20 times. Like now when the length is, is not a problem for me, mm-hmm. but again, I think again, it's just different, different things appeal to you, uh, appeal to an audience. So, all right. So we decided to put together a top five list of movies yeah. that you only need to see once. Why don't you kick us off? We'll start at number five. Like we usually do work our way up to number one, your number five movie. You only need to see once is yeah, I, and I tried to pick some newer movies as well because I figured you're probably yeah. gonna have a lot of older ones on your Go list. Figure. So this is the old. Uh, this uh, I have two from the '90s and then three from the 2000s. So this is one okay. of my two from the '90s. It's the 1995 film Leaving Las Vegas. Oh, so this that's stars, a good one, actually. Yeah, I saw yeah, it once so, too. Yeah. 
Yeah, this stars Nicolas Cage and Elizabeth Shue. They were both nominated for uh, for an Oscar for lead performance. Nicolas Cage won, uh, which is part of the reason that that you I think you need to watch this. These performances are outstanding. Um, for those who haven't uh, haven't seen it or maybe are not as familiar with it because it is a little bit older now, uh, Nicolas Cage plays a character who basically is at the end of his rope and he goes from Los Angeles to Las Vegas and he decides that's it. I'm going to end my life here this weekend. Uh, he's uh, suffered a lot of uh, personal and professional hardship. And he basically picks up a, a shopping cart full of alcohol and just drinks himself to death over the weekend while he's in Vegas. And the movie is the two days following from the time he gets there to the time, spoiler, that he he dies. I mean, um, and along the way, uh, early in the film, he runs into Elizabeth Shue, who is her character is a, a prostitute and uh, who is also not living her best life. And they they find that, you know, they sort of have some things in common and uh, and they pair up. The movie focuses a lot on loneliness and despair and alcoholism, which, you know, despair and alcoholism usually go hand in hand. Uh, it, it looks at different forms of dependency. And, um, it, you know, it, it's uh, I want to read a quote here. I pulled up when I was doing my homework here. This was something Roger Ebert wrote about this movie. When we were talking about the themes. He says, leaving Las Vegas is not a love story, although it feels like one, but a story about two desperate people using love as a form of prayer and a last resort against their pain. It is also a sad, trembling portrait of the final stages of alcoholism. Like this movie is a tough watch. It is somebody who just falls deeper and deeper and deeper into the despair that alcoholism brings. And anyone who has experienced this kind of thing themselves, uh, whether firsthand, personally, or through, you know, within a family member, uh, you know, alcoholism is is something that a lot of people can relate to in the worst possible ways. And this movie, it's a tough subject to have to sit through for two hours. But the performances are going to blow you away. And um, and again, it's with a lot of these movies that are sort of hard to watch, you're hopefully after you watch it, you learn something or you have a little bit of self-reflection. And and I think that's one of these ones that, uh, again, I, I saw it in 95 when it came out. I have not seen it since then. And um, but I do remember the enjoying the movie from a film point of view, but also sort of being blown away by just the portrayal of these people that just were in this situation, the, the, the way that Nicholas Cage just portrays a, a, this alcoholic in the last two days of his life is just, you know, the self-loathing, the self-punishment. It's just crazy. So this was, this is the, the number five on my list. Leaving oh, Las Vegas. From no, that, that's a good one. And like you, I saw it once and I, I thought it was fantastic. I thought the performances were great. Elizabeth Shue was great. She was like a, a revelation in that. Cause I would, I would think of her as, you know, like karate kid and stuff like, yeah, more, a little bit more like lighthearted stuff, but oh, she was wonderful. It was good. But again, don't need to see it again. I'm good. No, I saw it. no, it was same. great. And, and move on. And, you know? and the, another reason that you may only want to see it once is it's like, this was Nick, in my opinion. I mean, this was Nicolas Cage at his very best and Absolutely. everything he's done since then was just cashing a paycheck. And believe me, I find him in some cases very entertaining. I like The Rock. I like Con Air. Like he's done some stuff that that I have watched over and over again and that I've enjoyed. But man, oh man, this guy must pump out five, six, seven movies a year. He is literally just phoning it in and cashing a check. But it's because of the amazing work he did in this that he's continued to work for 30 years. He's clearly talented. Mm -hmm. This if you if you just think of Nicolas Cage as a has been and you've never seen this, go back and watch this and you'll realize how talented he really was in his prime. Mm -hmm. It was good. OK, my number five, maybe a bit of a surprise. I'm going to start off with a new movie. OK, it came out in 2022. Everything, everywhere, all at once. That's my movie. Wow. Yep. You only want to watch that once? Yeah. And, wow. and, and here's the, I know you love this movie too. And I thought it was great. But there's just so much going on in this movie. You'd think it would take multiple viewings to sort of properly appreciate it all. You know, take it all in. But for me, like, I'm good. I saw it once. That's all I need. First of all, it's really long. And like I said, there's a lot going on. It starts out, you think it's like a bit of a character study of kind of what it's like to be an immigrant family in America. And then it just takes this sort of sharp left turn. And it's this fantasy where, you know, they travel through time and space and other universes and stuff. The performances are amazing. Michelle Yeoh and Kiwi Kwan and Jamie Lee Curtis. Just so and it's directed so well, but I don't need to see it again. I've seen it once. I've experienced it. I'm good. So 
I don't know. I know you, you, you disagree because you could watch it multiple times and get different things out of it. Me, I'm like, I'm good. I've seen it once. I'm going to move on. So that's my number five. Wow. That's you really disagree. I, uh, well, I I'm surprised. Number one, I'm surprised you picked something so new. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's fresh two, in my mind. Cause I, like I well, say, I just watched it about a year ago. My wife and yeah. I'm like, I enjoyed it, but I'm like, I'm good. I would never watch it again. See, I, I we watched it in the theater, and then when it came out on uh, on DVD, Blu-ray, we bought that and I watched it again, um, and I enjoyed it just as much the second time around. This is one of those ones where because there was so much going on, I actually wanted to go back and watch it a second time to try and pick up on some of those nuances and, and little things you might have missed the first time around. And I think it's one of those ones that, given a little bit more time, uh, I'm going to want to go back and see it again. But, I, I mean, I get it. It, this movie is clearly not a for everybody kind of movie, but movie wins the Oscar for best picture and, and sweeps the awards uh, like it did. It, it's got something going for it. So I think mm-hmm. this is definitely falls in the category of everyone should see it at least once, whether or not it's one and done. That's up for debate, but it's, it's everything everywhere. Only once. That's what I'll name it. So. Wow. Okay. So uh, number four for you, what do you got? All right. I'm going to also go very recent here. Okay. This is a movie that I'm guessing very few of our listeners actually watched, and uh, so that's why I thought I needed to include it. It's from 2020, and the movie is called The Father. It stars Anthony Hopkins, who won an Oscar for Best Lead Actor, uh, Olivia Colman, uh, Rufus Sewell. Um, you're gonna. There's a lot of people. Olivia, uh, sorry, no. Olivia Colman. She's the one from that Broadchurch show. Yes. Yeah, I yeah. remember her. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Look, she's, I know. I know something new. A, there you yeah, go. Yeah, she's won a couple. I think she was nominated for this one as well. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if she won it or not. It won two Oscars. Let me just click on a check. But in any case, so this movie, for those who haven't seen it, um, this is going to appeal to different people for different reasons depending on how old you are. So it's about. Uh, an elderly gentleman who's in his 80s, played by uh, Anthony Hopkins, who is suffering from dementia. And it's uh, a very interesting and creative way to tell a story about the person who is themselves suffering from dementia and the people around them who are their family and their support system and their loved ones and how it affects them as well. Um, Oh, Olivia Coleman did win an Oscar as well. Oh, so, there you go. Yeah. So this one, uh, yeah, it, uh, the movie is told in a very broken way where although it mainly takes place in one apartment, like I think it was based on a stage play, so it's got only a couple of, um, couple of uh, locations, the time frame continues to jump backwards and forwards to represent the dementia uh, that the main character is suffering from where he's feels lost and he feels like he's in an unfamiliar place and he doesn't believe what people are telling him because five minutes ago this person was a child and then now they're an adult saying no no i'm your daughter i'm this old and you're like no no my daughter's six i just saw her and then an hour later she's six again and like the way that it just bounces back and forth it's it really looks at the idea of aging and this this mental illness of dementia and just the, the toll it takes and as someone you know, we, we are all getting older, but as someone who now I have aging parents, not that either of them are suffering from dementia, but my grandparents had had mental illness and, and dementia. So, you know, I'm I'm hoping that my parents don't go through that. But I've heard from other people who as they start to take care of their elderly parents and they themselves start to get older, these are real concerns. And and it can be so difficult, not just on the people who are, are suffering from it, but the people around them. And this movie, I think, does a really good job of of trying to explain it in an artistic way and a, in a somewhat entertaining way. And the performances are next level, like so good, but it also is, it's very sad. And, and because you know, this, this very well could be a situation that you find yourself in as either the role of the, the children in this film that are, are there trying to take care of their elderly father or of the father himself who doesn't realize that he's suffering from this and is just confused. It's uh, it's a really, really good movie that I think flew under the radar because it came out uh, in 2020 during the pandemic. So it had very, very limited exposure in the theater. And I think it sort of came and went to the streamers quite quickly. But when people start winning Oscars for movies, you shouldn't forget about them. If you haven't already seen it, I don't think I need to see this one again. It was very sad, very depressing movie, just uh, again, because it hit home a little bit closer for me than maybe others. But 
super, super good. Very well done. Uh, I think everyone does need to see this, but I, I think once is enough. It's called The Father. It came out in 2020. Mm, that's a good one. <clears throat> so I surprised you a bit with my first one because it was a newer movie, which I usually don't do. So this one, I'm going to go way back. I'm going to surprise you actually with an older movie. It's from 50 years ago because we reviewed it here on the podcast at the beginning of last season. And it's The Exorcist. Oh, okay. So because we had we wanted to go back and watch that movie last year, it was the first time I really had a chance to watch it. Obviously, one of the most famous horror films of all time. A lot of shocking moments in it. Um, you think about some of the stuff that goes on, like the crucifix and grabbing her mom and the barfing and the head spinning and all that stuff. But the thing that got me too was that in that angiography scene, with the blood squirting out everywhere at her neck. That's the scene that had people vomiting and like leaving the theater back in uh, 73 when it came out. You know, there's so much going on. There's so many, you know, things that just are shocking in it. It's a classic. It's probably one of the most influential films ever made. One of the most famous movies, that's for sure. But I think you, you I only need to see this once. I'm good. It's not a movie I would go back and rewatch again. Again, for a lot of those shocking moments, I think the the impact they have is when you see them for the first time. It's like, wow. If I saw them again, I'd be like, yeah, it wouldn't have that same impact for me. So I think that The Exorcist is one of those movies I would not watch a second time. I've seen it once. It's a classic. I'm good. I'm moving on. And so that's number four on my list. So. Nice. Yeah. yeah, no good pick. No, I right. agree. I, yeah. I like you. Yeah, I think once once was enough for me for that one as right. well. So, so number three. What All right. I, I'm going to go with the one that the most obvious one that I think everybody when you mm -hmm. ask them this is going to jump to. And that's 1993 Steven Spielberg Schindler's List. Yeah, oh, that's uh, a good one. Yeah. You know, arguably one of the most uh, celebrated and, and talented directors of our generation. Uh, I mean, he's done so many things to be remembered for. And you want to talk about a year in a life. You put out Jurassic Park and Schindler's List in the same year. Like there are directors that have, would kill to have those two movies and those two movies alone on their resume. But to put them out in the same year is just amazing. Like I, I can't get over just the, the things that must have had to align for that to come together for him. But and so many of his other movies you could watch over and over like Raiders and Jaws and E.T. You could watch them over and over. Jurassic even Park, Jurassic Park. Oh, yeah. over and over and over and over again. But not that one. Good point. No, no. So this this falls into the cat some of the categories we talked about. It's three hours and fifteen minutes, so mm -hmm. it's long. It's about a very depressing topic, being the Holocaust. Uh, but at the same time, it's a topic that it's important that people are educated on and don't forget. Right? It's like you always say: those who who forget history are destined to make the same mistakes. And like this is something that as horrific as it was, uh, we can't afford to forget. And I think that's a big part of why Spielberg made this movie is, is, you know, for that reason, uh, it obviously explores the themes of, of good and evil. The idea that, you know, even a single man can do the right thing when faced with, you know, the, the most difficult obstacles, uh, and, and, and have, a positive outcome in an area that would otherwise have been full of despair, but it also, does focus on the actual uh, the Jews that are in it and the idea of hope and faith in times of despair and how even when things are at their literal absolute worst, hope and faith can can help you survive uh, or or persevere. And I mean, I'm sure I'm not doing this movie justice by simplifying it this much. If you haven't seen it, you know, it's a tough watch. And I know a lot of people uh, my age had to watch it for school, for a history class or a sociology class. And that's how a lot of people saw it is they they even there were I remember they did outings to the theater to, to see it because this this movie, in addition to this very difficult and sensitive topic, is a literal masterpiece of filmmaking. And like this um, Spielberg won the Oscar and rightly so. Like, like this is this is the best thing he's ever done and the best thing he will ever do. And, and I'm sure he would say that himself. So for that reason and the performances, right, you have uh, Liam Neeson and Ben Kingsley and Ray Fiennes. Like these people are, are again, giving their best work. And it's just a, a, um, a merging of so many artists coming together to do this movie, to make this film, this important film. And, you know. It's like that. You know, it's like I said. 
have I seen it? Yes, I saw it once. I did it. I literally did it in one sitting. I'm, I'm, you know, more proud. I guess it's not really something to be proud of, but <laughs> I'm proud to say I have seen it. I watched it once. I did it once sitting. It was an emotional roller coaster. Like if you're not changed after you see this movie, like there's something wrong with you. And uh, but one, uh, that's it. One and done for me for this one. I, I I'm, I, you know, I don't have to watch this again. I, and I, we reviewed it on the podcast, right? I didn't. Maybe no. you and Yancey might have. Oh, I thought maybe we did. Or maybe it was just that you kept talking it up and I'd never seen it. So I went back and I actually watched it. But I agree with you. Like, I saw it once. I'm good. Like, I mean, it was, it was great and everything. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I don't think I'd want to watch it again. That's a good pick. I think that's pretty good. All right. Uh, my number three, I'm going with a movie from 1980, you know, because I like to go back. Shocking. I know. And it's The Elephant Man. Have oh, you ever seen pick. it, Derek? I've actually seen that one multiple times. Oh. I had to watch it for a film class. So uh, I'm picking it not just because it, it's sad, you know, um, but I mean, there's a lot of reasons. And the thing is, like, Mel Brooks produced this movie. And yep. although he was uncredited in the original theatrical release so that audience, you know, the audiences didn't think it would be a comedy. And, and this is an interesting one because I saw this movie in the theater when it came out. I was 10 years old. And I went to see this wow. movie because I heard about it. I thought, I want to go see this. And I love film right from when I was a little kid. So I went and I saw it and I have not seen it since, nor do I really care to see it again. Um, and it's not because it's not good. It was fantastic. John Hurt's best performance by far. And obviously it's a true story. It's based on on Joseph Merrick's life. They call him John Merrick in the film. Yeah. And directed by David Lynch, who's done some other great work, too. He's he's directed Mm -hmm. Eraserhead and Dune, Blue Velvet. Eraserhead's another one that kept showing up on those lists as a watch it once. Again, I'm familiar with it. I've never seen it. Knowing what it's about, I have no desire to watch it. Mm -hmm. But I haven't seen it, so I couldn't put it on my list. So this this movie's pretty hard to watch at times because, I mean, you know, it's about deformity and, and cruelty, you know, toward this man. People suck. Like, I mean, just, oh, man. But really, I mean, the, the film is really about sort of discrimination and dominant groups in society and how they treat other people, you know, that are different. And and, and the thing is, too, like, this, it's a universal film. Like, it, it, to this day, like, this idea of the freak show, we like to think of it as like, oh, that was something back in the day, back in the 1800s, you know, in like, you know, in circuses behind the curtain and stuff. B.S. It's still alive and well. Like through the 90s, you had Jerry Springer. Same concepts. Even just last year, I watched a movie called The Whale. And and really, the same idea is there about sort of, you know, people's curiosity about other people that are different or kind of freaks in some way. Like, so I don't know. I just, I, I feel like this movie, it, it's an important film. But I just, I think you, you just watch it once and you're good. You know, you get that. The central theme about this movie to me is is that you shouldn't you shouldn't judge the decisions that people make in regard to their disabilities or their differences, mm-hmm. you know, because you want to judge them at the end of the movie in a way because he takes his own life in a way by removing the pillows and stuff. But it just I don't know. I, th- I think there's so much going on here. It's, it's a very important movie, but I don't know. I just don't think it requires multiple viewings. It's it's an important film. I recommend everyone watch it, like you've mentioned on some of yours. But I think once you've seen it, you don't need to go back and watch it again. So it's a one and done for me. The Elephant yep. Man, and and it's got Anthony Hopkins second yep. appearance on our list here. Yeah, and he was good in it too. Yeah. So so was um, uh, Anne Bancroft. I thought she was good in that too. I remember her. Anyway, okay, your number two uh, movie you only need to watch once is. All right, I got I got. My number one and my number two are both pretty recent. So okay. my number two I'm going to go with is from 2008. It's the Darren Aronofsky film, The Wrestler. Now, you just mm-hmm. mentioned The Whale, also directed by Aronofsky. Uh, we're going to look at The Wrestler. So this was the one that basically uh, kickstarted, uh, you know, uh, relaunched Mickey Rourke's career, if you will. Yeah. Um, it's the story about an aging sort of has been washed up professional wrestler who um is basically told early in the movie he suffers a, a heart attack and the doctors are like, you'll have to stop wrestling or you're going to die. And the movie really looks at the idea of uh, uh, like aging and, uh, you know, common theme here with my last movie, The Father, uh, with uh, aging and um, the idea that for some people, 
you know, there's no escape. The, the choices you make in your life become like a prison. You don't have options. Uh, whether these are deliberate choices you've made, maybe these are socioeconomic dis- things where, you, you know, it's beyond your control. Uh, the movie also focuses a lot on things like identity and like who is he you know he is he is he a wrestler is he a person playing a wrestling playing a wrestler is he you know and um it's uh it really it's an interesting look at this character who you know despite the reality that he has essentially no future once he's told he can't wrestle it starts to dawn on him like this this was inevitable he had no money, no real long-term retirement plan. He, he, he had no other job prospects. He has a part-time job in a grocery store. And it's like, you see how miserable his life is in this part-time job. And, um, you know, even in the middle of the movie, there's like, he has like what you could consider like the best possible day in retail. And he thinks, Hey, if my life could be like this, I'd be fine to give up wrestling. And then the very next day is like the worst possible day in retail. And he realizes, no, not for me. It's uh, it's a really interesting look at just someone who, realizes they have no options and you know how they choose to deal with it and it's it's again this is a tough watch but i mean mickey rourke was nominated for an oscar for this and he was great it's also got marissa tomei giving one of her best performances she as was well. really good at it too yeah, yeah. Uh, i believe she was also nominated evan rachel wood plays uh, his daughter mm-hmm. she's good in this one as well and uh, again darren aronofsky is a director that i like he's always got an interesting perspective on how to put a film together um yeah again not one you got to watch i think more than once i remember uh, so i i've only seen this once i saw it at the toronto international film festival and it's canadian premiere with a live audience and like all the performers were there and they did a big q a after and it was just like wow it's uh, it was like just the power of this movie and, and and the way it came across especially on the big screen was just amazing but it's it's like you start to think about all the themes that are that go into it and what what's the movie trying to say and and the the pitfalls and the challenges this character is going to have to go through and yeah it's it's an interesting watch to go through one time but i, I think once is enough for me mm-hmm. so funny I enough I, I actually saw the movie in the movie theater when it came out i want to say it was like 2007 2008 somewhere 2008 there. Yeah. yeah and i remember i went to see it in the movie theater i thought it was quite good but same like you that's a good one because i don't i have no desire to see it again i've seen it it was great but i'm good i've experienced it you know it's all good. So my my number two, actually my number two and my number one, you're both going to be surprised because they're both like not from the 70s or not even from the 80s. They're both from the 90s, late 90s wow. too. So it's going to be a little bit of a surprise. Wow. Okay, my number two, I'm going with the Blair Witch Project. Oh, good pick. Sort of that original found footage movie, right? It This definitely lacks the same impact, you know, on a second viewing. Because I saw this in the movie theater when it came out. I saw it once. I'm good. Uh, When you watch it the first time, it just feels so real. Like they weren't professional actors. It has all this grainy footage. The camera is moving all around. And there's like, it changes between black and white and color because they're like, they use two different, there was a camcorder and a film. Um, I think it, I feel like this is less of a movie and more of an experience. Yes. Like when it came out, it it was just a, a thing Like you had to experience it. And you can only experience it once because this movie is not just about what's on the screen. In fact, it's about what's not on the screen. It's what you don't see. Right. And the ending is pretty good, too. I thought it was good, but you can only get that once. Only get it once. That's it. And the thing was, too, back in 1999, like most people weren't on the Internet yet. You know, so it was like, is it real? Is it fake? Everyone wasn't sure. Like, it was a whole experience to see this movie. And it's not something that you can relive. I think you you watch it once, you're done, you're good. Especially if you saw it, you know, in the theater or, you know, originally in 1999. And then we're good. So that's my number two. So Well, I remember when, uh, so like you, I saw it in the theater. Mm -hmm. And then when it came out on video, I was working at Blockbuster Video. And it was very popular. A lot of people... Or hearing the hype, but didn't see it in the theater because it was technically it was an independent movie, but it, like yeah. it, it made a lot of money considering how little it cost to make it. And I can remember um, I'm working at the Blockbuster Video with, uh, with our friend Greg Martin, who has appeared on the show before. He and I worked at Blockbuster together for years, and I'm working, and and he's at the cash desk to me, and a woman comes up to him, and she's returning the videos from the night before, and he's like, "Oh, you can just put them in the shoot," and she's like, "Whoever made this movie should be shot." <laughs> And he's like, what are you talking about? 
And and she just sort of like scowls at him, like, how dare you rent this? And he goes, you know, it's not real, right? And like the woman sort of, you could see the wheel turn in her head. She was like, it's not. Like she genuinely thought that it was this found footage that someone's like, we're going to make some money off of this by turning it into a feature film. And it's like, and she wasn't alone. We had a lot of people in the video store that, again, like you said, the internet was not really a thing. And so that was part of the success of this movie was the fact that there was this unknown quantity about like, is this real? Is it not? Like, did these people really die? Like, what's going on? So, yeah, it was and and it launched a whole genre. It was definitely an experience. So, yeah, that's a great pick. I'm, I'm actually a little surprised it's not your number mm-hmm. one. That, that that sort of fits this category perfectly. Yeah, it does. OK, so what is your number one? OK, my number one, mm-hmm. again, might be a little bit of a letdown after Schindler's List. That's for sure. But uh, again, I'm not going best movie or anything like that i'm gonna go with one that just i actually kind of enjoyed it's uh the movie the road from 2009 it's based on the novel by cormac mccarthy um it's um starring vigo mortensen and it's got smaller parts by Charlize theron robert duvall guy pierce uh it is a post-apocalyptic movie uh based on the post-apocalyptic book the idea here is um some sort of you know i won't even watch it once no of course (laughs) It's something has happened. It's it's eluded that it was a nuclear bomb had dropped or something. They, they don't really get into the specifics, but that's not what the book's about. So you don't really need it. You just need to know something happened before the start of the book, before the start of the movie. And it focuses on a man and his son who are never named. Even in the book, they just call them man and boy. And in the movie credits, it's just called man and boy. And it's their, uh, their struggle for survival in a world where Everything is dying. Everything, all social order has fallen apart. It's this look at survival. It's this look at the humanity of this this man trying to raise his son alone in a world where there's no hope. And what's what's alluded to and shown more in the movie than in the book is that the child in the movie was basically born when the apocalypse was happening. So he was born into a world where he's never known anything different. And the father is trying to educate him and teach him and and instill morals and values. But in some cases, the father's trying to instill the old rules in the new world. And even the boy is confused about like why he's being told or taught or asked to do things a certain way when it's clear that there's no good reason to do them that way other than that's what's familiar to the father. And you know, through the course of this two hour ish movie, they're they're traveling, they're trying to find some sort of relative safety, they're trying to survive, they're trying to find food and shelter and stay warm. And uh, of course, they come across all sorts of marauders and bandits and cannibals and people who would do bad things to them to simply take what they have. And it continues to focus on the relationship between this father and his son, this this struggles for for hope and humanity. And I think that following the pandemic that we went through a couple of years ago, obviously it wasn't world ending like it is in this movie, but even something like that changed so much of what we took for granted. And it's, you know, when I was doing the, the, the research on this and remembering back to it, I'm, I'm constantly finding this is happening now where even things like my office, well, I was working at home for years. Now they want us to go back into the office. And it's like, why? Well, cause that's how we always used to do it. It's like, but haven't we demonstrated that the new way is working and to make me go back simply because that's what used to happen. Is that the right reason? And, and I think a movie like this, where it sort of touches on those kinds of themes is probably even a little more relevant today after people have lived through a pandemic where, you, you know, you can't always apply the old rules to today. Um, and, and it's hard to get people to give up what's familiar to them, regardless of what sort of evidence you put right in front of them as to why they need to reconsider their, their preconceptions. The book is fantastic, but I will caution anyone who is interested in possibly picking it up. It is one long paragraph that is 300 pages and it is very difficult to read because you don't realize how important a paragraph break is until you've got a book that is just one long paragraph. So it is a very difficult read, but it is totally worth it. The movie, not nearly as good as the book, but I think is is quite good as well. But again, you only have to watch it once. It's called The Road. It's from 2009. If you have a chance, give it a watch. 
that's my number one pick. All right. So you mentioned at the beginning when we were kind of laying out some parameters and rules for this, one of the things that would qualify a movie to only watch once is like a twist ending. So I'm going with, of course, the ultimate twist ending from 1999, The Sixth Sense. And for me, like I know some people have watched it over and over again to kind of try and find all the clues. I have. The thing is, though, the way that the ending is done, there's no need to see this movie again. Because once Bruce Willis realizes what's going on, the director actually shows you at the end of the movie really quickly through these flashbacks how his character misinterprets all the clues along the way. You know, like the door doesn't open because there's a a small table in front of it and the the wife doesn't speak in the restaurant because she was alone, you know? So he kind of lays it all out there. So, and the thing was, this movie, when it came out, it made a boatload of money. And, uh, but Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace also came out that year. Dumbest movie ever. But, uh, so that was like the number one movie at the box office. Otherwise, this would have been. The Sixth Sense made $300 million domestically, over $670 million worldwide. But the thing was, it wasn't because people were going back to the theater to see it, you know, four, five, six times and all that kind of thing. It was more that people were pulling other people to go see it or convincing other people to go see it. And the thing was, nobody spoiled the ending. Maybe because yeah. like the Blair Witch Project, the internet wasn't as big of a thing, you know, but nobody spoiled the ending. It was just, and it, so it, it was so amazing because then, you know, you'd go to see them in this movie that you heard all about and you're like, I can't believe nobody gave this away. Oh my yeah. gosh. Like, why didn't they? Because they had such a reverence for it and the way it was done, they didn't give it away, you know? And like the thing is too, if you think about it, the movie's kind of boring, <laughs> you know, really until the end when it really hits you. But I mean, it hits you hard the, the, the when you see it. And the thing is you can never, ever replicate that, you know? It's just, it's like, it, it's the experience of, of going through it and getting it. It's just so great. And you, you cannot do that a second time. So The Sixth Sense is my number one film that you can only watch once and you only nice. need to watch once. So. I was going to say, it's interesting that both your one and number one and number mm-hmm. two are both basically movies where the ending is what really matters. Yeah. And they both came out in 99. And arguably that is probably the last time pre-internet where this could have Yep. done what it did because like you said it would be spoiled yep. i know in both for both of those movies i saw both of them on the opening weekend because at that time i was seeing every movie as it came out any movie i was interested in i saw it in the first weekend but yeah you're right even a week later two weeks later three weeks later when people are like have you seen the sixth sense i was like yeah have you and they're like not yet i'm like well i you should see it before you know you should see it like you you don't even want to sort of allude that there's a twist ending because if people know that something's up then they're watching a little more closely for it and uh, yeah, whereas now things are spoiled. Thing, most things are spoiled right in the trailer of the movie. Hey, this movie's yep. come out in six months. Here's a trailer. It's like, thanks for showing me the last scene in the trailer. Like, why Why am I going to pay my money now? Like, you've spoiled. That's why I, I try to avoid trailers at all costs. Um, but yeah, even on, I remember when like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, when it was starting to like really hit its prime right before the Avengers Endgame. And there was all these things online uh, where people were like, please don't spoil this movie. Please boycott reviews. Please boycott spoilers for at least the first week so the people who really want to go can have a chance to go. Obviously, like I'm on a lot of nerd uh, comic book chat sites and, and social media and a lot of my followers and the people I follow, they would say, they're like, we're not going to spoil this. We're going to give you at least a week. But that was it. They were like, if you haven't seen it by the end of the first weekend, okay, now we're going <laughs> to tell you who did all it. All bets are off. Yeah. Yeah. Like that just wasn't happening in 99. It was a different time for. Yeah. For I remember so when, when the sixth sense came out, it was out for a while and I didn't go see it in the, in the movie theater right away. And it was like out for a couple weeks, then it went away and then they brought it back. They kind of re-released it. And it was at that point when I was like, okay, I've heard so much, like it's so good. So I went back to see it then. And even at that point, nobody had spoiled the ending. And I was like, wow, "Wow." like nobody gave this, like what the hell? At the end of the movie, I was like, oh my God. I just remember thinking, oh, this director, he got me. My God, he got me. He wrote me in and got me. And I think that was the thing that they, everyone kind of put uh, Shyamalan up on a pedestal and he just Mm -hmm. could never relive it after that. But uh, yeah. So for him, it was a it was a one and done too. But anyway, what do you say on that note? We do some fun with caveman. Caveman, you like to do some betting. I know you're a betting. Do guy. I ever? I mean, you like betting. And one of the things in betting that we like to do is the the over under. 
And so nice. the thing with the over under is it's really, it's always really, really close. I don't know if you're like a, a basketball fan, but if you bet on basketball, like the over under is like these, these handicappers, they're good. It's real close. So, you know, it's, it's like 50, 50. All right. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you the year and the number one movie from that year. Oh boy. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to set the over under for the total number of movie tickets sold. Cause we're talking movie, about movies, number of tickets or number, number of tickets. No, no, we're not, we're not talking about the money that it took in okay. because that changes over time, you yes, know, with inflation course, and stuff like that. What I want to concentrate on tonight is just how many tickets it actually sold because we're talking about movies. You'd only see once. This is the opposite movies that, you know, sold multiple times. Like, you know, lots of people went to see it over and over and over again. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the year, the number one movie at the box office. I'm going to give you a number of tickets sold. And you tell me if it's over or under Jeez, for that movie. It's going to be so hard. I, it's going to be hard, right. but I mean, we like to bet. And this is between the years. I'm going to keep it between the years of 1995 and 2005. Okay. 1995 and 2005. Okay. Yeah. So we'll start with 1995. The number one movie was Batman Forever. I'm going to set the over-under at 40 million tickets sold. Was it over or under? Sorry, it was Batman Forever? Batman Forever was the number one film in 1995. 40 no, it, million tickets sold. Had, over or be, under? It had to be under 40 million. 42 million tickets were sold for Batman Forever, believe it or not, wow. back in 95. Okay, 1996. The number one film, as you might recall, was Independence Day. Oh, yeah. I'm going to set the over-under at 70 million tickets. Yeah, no, it's got to be over. That one was a huge thing. 69 million tickets were sold. Oh, geez. Ooh, just okay. under. Okay. 1997, the number one film was Men in Black. Yep. I'm going to set the over-under at 55 million tickets sold. Over ha- or under? It's got to be closer to Independence Day, so it's got to be over. <laughs> Under was 54 million tickets were sold for Men in Black. Man, I'm over three. I'm not yeah, doing well on this. Well, this is, again, over under is hard, as I've always said. Okay, 1998, Titanic was the number one film that year, even though it came out at the end of 97. Yeah. 1998 is when it made all its money. I'm going to say 100 million tickets sold. Over or under, 100 million tickets sold. It was the number one movie ever. I got to say over. 104 million tickets were yeah. sold for that movie. Okay. 1999, as I mentioned previously, dumbest movie ever, Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. I'll set the over under at 85 million. Oh, no, def- over, over or under? Over. 84 million tickets uh, were sold oh. for Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. I think once the word got out that it sucked so bad, yeah, and people stopped going. Okay, 2000, the number one film was... How the Grinch Stole Christmas, believe it or not, that year. The Jim Carrey one? Yeah. Number one film in 2000. 2000 wow. was obviously not a banner year for film. No kidding. That crap is coming out. Back-to-back bad years, Star Wars Episode One and then The Grinch. So, How the Grinch Stole Christmas in 2000. I'm going to set the over-under at 45 million tickets sold. Did it sell over I, or I, under? I really hope that's under. <laughs> 47 million Jeez. people went to see that stupid, Jeez. stupid movie. Okay, 2001, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone was the number one film. I'm going to set the over-under at 45 million tickets. Oh, no, that movie was huge based on the books. Got to be over. Yeah, 47 million tickets were sold for that. Okay, 2002, Spider-Man. I'm going to go high. I'm going to go 70 million tickets. Over or under? I'm going under. You are correct. There we go. <laughs> you are correct. It was under 69 million. So just wow. under. Okay, 2003, the number one film was Finding Nemo. 55 million tickets sold are going to make the over or under. Was it over or under oh, that many well, tickets I got, sold? I kind of think it was more in the Grinch. So I'm going to say over. 56 million tickets were sold for Finding Nemo. 2004, Shrek 2 was the number one film. I'm going to go high on this. I'm going to go 70 million tickets. Wow. 
well, over or under? I, I wouldn't have thought it would have been it would not be as much as the last one, but you really pumped that number. I'm gonna still go under. Seventy-one million. It's over. Jeez, went to wow. see that one. Okay, and the last one, 2005. Oh, another beauty. Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. Although I like to refer to this movie as Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the. Sh- I just reverse two of the letters in the title. Mm-hmm. That's all. Uh, 16 million tickets. Over or under? What do you think? I think people had a lot of hope that they were going to stick the landing. So I'm going to say over. 59 million Jeez. was under. I think people realized that it was actually revenge of the. So that's what. I only got four right. I got seven wrong and four right. I know. I like I say, the over under is really hard to do when it comes to betting. So if we learn any lesson here, if you're going to bet on sports at all, stay away from the over under because it's really hard to do. All right. So, Derek, so, so you're worried that you didn't do very good with the over under stuff. So I'm going to give you a chance to redeem yourself right now okay. with some actual real trivia. Okay? okay. So we're talking about movies that have sold the most tickets. Ever. Not not the highest grossing film, but movies that have sold the most tickets. So the most yep. people have actually gone to the movie theater to see it. Um, I have a list of the top 25 films of all time in order that have sold the most tickets. Can you name the top three? I, or even I, I know I, you can probably do. Can you at least do the top one? What's the number one? Got to be film? Gone with the Wind. Correct. Gone with the Wind is the number one film in history with over 202 million tickets sold all the way back in 1939. Any guess what number two might be? Yeah, well, I think I got the next few. I just don't know the order. I'm going to go with Wizard of Oz. No, the Wizard of Oz actually is quite low on the list. I don't even... I don't even know if I see it on there. Nope. Wow. Um, I'll give you a hint. It's okay. one of my top three favorite no, films. No, I know. I, I mean, okay. So coming up next, it's got to be Star Wars. Star Wars. Yes. And we call it Star Wars. They, they, they've listed on here Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. Ah, no, that, it's Star, Star Wars. Wars. Yeah, 178 million people went to the movie theater to see that. And any uh, guesses what number three would be? It's a little bit of a surprise, but for a, for a period of time from 1962 until 1972, I guess it was, this film held the all-time box office. Well, uh, I was going to say E.T., but that's wrong mm-hmm. then. Um, but, um, wow. It was a musical. Oh, was it uh, Singing in the Rain? No, no, it was uh, ca- uh, 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 hills are alive. Yeah, I never would have got that. Oh, you said it. So it was the sound of music. The number three, sure. 142 million people bought tickets wow. to go see that. Rounding out the top five, E.T., the extraterrestrial number four and Titanic was number five. Yeah, those are my very literally those are yeah. my two. That's what I said. I knew I could have got most of the top five. A couple ones so. in here were surprising. Like if I'm looking at like number six was Ten Commandments. Never would have got that. Jaws was number seven. I, I get Dr. Oh. Zhivago was eight. The Exorcist was nine. Really? And Snow White and the Seven Dwarves rounds out the top ten. 109 Jeez, million wow. tickets sold. Amazing. Yep. You know? The mo- one of the most the most recent one on there was right after number eleven, Star Wars The Force Awakens in twenty fifteen. Hmm. So other than well, that, there think- are a lot of older like stuff. So, yeah, well, I think the way that we watch movies has changed. So those numbers are never right. going to I, I, I'd be shocked if those, if those numbers ever, you know, if those records ever got broken. I mean, now that you can stream it, watch it on your phone, watch it on demand, own a copy for yourself. Like people aren't going to go back to the theater again and again when they can just watch it whenever they feel like it. And that's why so many of those movies on that list are so much older. My three favorite films are all on there. Raiders of Lost Ark, Jaws and Star Wars. Where's Raiders? Raiders is number 22. 88 oh, okay. million people. Okay. I mean, right. I'm, I'm up there for at least six or seven of those tickets myself. Yeah. I, couple, I saw it a lot in the theater. Yeah. And I, like I say, a couple of surprises, like I think the sting was ahead of Raiders of Lost Ark. The graduate was just after Raiders of Lost Ark. And number 24 was Fantasia all the way back in 1941. 83 well, million I, people. And I want to say Fantasia, I think, was re-released in the late 90s before the new. they did a Fantasia 2000 sequel. I think they re-released the original in the theater. So mm, that, maybe And that, that was the case with a lot of those old movies, right? They would re-release them over and over again, and so you would get to pad those numbers. I think maybe the biggest surprise on here is number 12 for me, 101 Dalmatians from 1961. Really? Yeah. Wow, yeah, that's a surprise. That's like way up. It's, it's ahead of The Empire Strikes Back. Like, that's, that's pretty crazy. A lot of people went to see it, so... Mm. 
Okay, next time we come back, we're going to do a movie. You want to do a movie next time? What do you think we should do? Well, I uh, I was reaching out to uh, my buddy Greg Martin, who I was just talking about a few minutes ago, and oh. asked him if he'd like to come back on the show. And, of course, he said, yeah, you talked me into it. No, he was pretty enthusiastic. And he suggested a movie that he and I had to watch uh, in film class way back when, and it's the 1983, right in your wheelhouse, epic Scarface starring Al Pacino directed Ooh. by Brian De Palma from 1983. Okay, so I know all the old movies. This one's going to surprise you, but I have never seen Scarface. Really? Never well, seen it. Greg is going to be at me that I have oh, never yeah. seen that movie, but that's great that he's going to join us next week. It's one of his favorite films, you're saying? Yeah, it's definitely one of his favorite. We actually, he and I took some film classes together when we were at university and we had to watch the original Scarface the, from like the 30s in black and white as a part of the curriculum and then afterwards he and i went out and rented this one because we're like well now that we watch the old one, we gotta watch the new one again so i have not seen it in quite a long time but uh i i'm looking forward to revisiting it and uh like i said it's one of greg's favorite movies it runs almost three hours so if you haven't seen it you know you may need to, to take i actually you know what i think i think there's an intermission in the middle of this movie oh I, wow. i'm fairly certain there is because i remember when we used to rent it on video it was two video cassettes and i think it's one of those ones where they literally have an intermission as a part of the running time. So Very in any cool. case, and it's readily available on the streamers. I think, I think I looked, it was on like Netflix and Amazon prime. So okay. but, uh, cool. yeah, no, let's, uh, let's come back next week. We'll watch 1983 Scarface Al Pacino mm -hmm. and, um, and Greg will join us and we'll talk all about that movie and we'll kind of review it and go from there. Yeah. Um, so I tell you what, make sure, I was going to say, make sure your kids aren't around. This one is yeah, very hardcore. It's written, written by Oliver Stone, man. There's a lot okay. of violence, a lot of <laughs> I'll make sure that they don't watch it with me. I'll watch it alone. You know, I'll tell you what, until then, uh, I'm Chris McBrien. That's Derek Myers. And we're saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show.